Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before we get to this interview with Forerunner Ventures founder Kirsten Green, a quick heads up. In the interview, Kirsten and I talked about the management shakeup at the luggage startup Away, which she invested in. At the time we recorded the interview last week, Away's co-founder, Steph Corey, had announced she was stepping down as CEO, a consequence of a shocking story about her leadership and company culture published by our sister site, The Verge. But just a few days ago, Corey said she would return as co-CEO and has hired a lawyer to threaten legal action against The Verge for its report. For the latest on this developing story, please visit TheVerge.com and Vox.com slash Recode. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the founder of a monthly subscription service for Shakespearean sonnets. It's called Bard Box. Oh, Eric, that's really bad. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is someone I admire very much, Kirsten Green, the founder and managing director of venture capital firm Forerunner Ventures. She's invested in companies such as Glossier Ritual, Dollar Shave Club. Kirsten is also founding member of the female mentorship collective, All Rays. Kirsten, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. So we've talked many times before at one of Jason's events in Las Vegas, but you're one of my favorite people to talk to. And I'm not going to focus on you just being a woman, but you're one of the few women venture capitals I get to talk to, although there's many more coming down the pike now. And, and that's good many, news. Which is good news. Yep. We'll talk about that later. But one of the things that's really interesting that I found about you is you were sort of, I don't want to call you a stealth VC, <laughs> but a lot of VCs sort of tout themselves rather ex extravagantly. I'm not trying to say yeah. that in a nice way. They're egomaniacs and narcissists. And you do not do that, but you've had a series of investments that have been really, I wouldn't say they're quiet, but they're, you've done it in a much different way and have had really interesting success because they're sort of from a different perspective. So I want to talk about sort of your, your investing habits, but first let's talk a little bit about your background, how you got to do this. You've been investing for 10 years now, correct? 10 years or more. I have to reconcile how old I'm getting, Okay, Kara, but All right. it's actually been more like 25. 20 years. Okay, so talk <laughs> a little bit. Go back into your background and how you got in the investment area. Yeah. You know, I think that in a lot of ways, I was interested early on in investing because I appreciated the variety it offered, the mm -hmm. chance to learn about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, I liked that it was an analytical and model-based type of business. Sure. I think that suited, like, 
parts of my personality. Why was that? And I liked that it was practical. Why was that? Well, what was your you know, educational background? Well, actually, so, you know, if I think about kind of things that have been formative for me and in my career specifically, it's really more about people than mm-hmm. it is necessarily about being analytical. Right. So when I was young, I was a quieter person, a more introverted person, a person who would watch what was going on around them. Mm-hmm. I had a certain set of circumstances in my life that really made it important for me to pay attention to people mm-hmm. and their moods and their motivations and their personalities. And I think through that, I learned a lot of empathy towards people. And I kind of became the person in my friend group or my extended friend group where people would come and sort of sit on my couch, so to speak, and right. share things with them, mm-hmm. with me. And I think that gave me more opportunity to kind of hone that skill. And I really liked that. And I really valued that a lot. And in some ways, that would have put me on a path to be something like a therapist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I had this other side that was just really practical mm-hmm. that said that I wanted safety and security and sort of a traditional idea of success, which meant um, some success in business. Mm-hmm. And so that is where I directed my attention when I thought about what a career looked like. I was an economics major. I worked at Merrill Lynch while I was in college. I think that was my first experience kind of in investing. And I immediately was turned on by the learning aspect of it, and I felt like going back to being an introverted type of person, even though I liked people a lot and I was really in tune with what was going on with people, I liked that I could sit and read and learn about things right. and apply and that kind of stuff to yeah. investing. And right. so, you know, that was sort of the early draw to investing. Um, and So looking for patterns, looking for... Looking for patterns. That, right. that, felt, that felt safe mm-hmm. and like something I could do. When I had a job like that, I think the... Thing I realized when I was in that role was I needed to do something that I needed to bring something unique to the table mm-hmm. to stand out or really be successful. And I was a young person just starting working, and everybody else had more experience that they could lean on. And so I really was looking for the things that I could uniquely contribute. And at that point in time, I was covering retail stocks, mm-hmm. and I thought about this is for an investment bank. Yeah, yeah. And I thought about getting to know the consumer, and mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time kind of leaning again back on that intuition and that people aspect of it about thinking about the consumer and putting myself in that seat and trying to reconcile that against the business that I was looking at or evaluating. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's you were on the sell side. Or I was on I was on the sell side, and then I moved over to the buy side, okay. but both on the public markets mm-hmm. over a span of ten years. And what really lit me up around investing then was the combination of the two. It was kind of taking the quantitative part, bringing in the qualitative part, and having that allow you to have some original thinking and find an investment that maybe other people weren't drawn to that had an outside opportunity. Which you were doing via recommendations. I mean, Mary Meeker did the case. Totally. And that's exactly what I was doing. It was late 90s, you know, kind of into the early 2000s. And um, it was an exciting time in the market. And I was covering teen stocks, and it was really kind of— Teen stocks. Teen stocks. (laughs) It was teen retail stocks. So, you know, it was the rise of the mall. It was all those specialty retail stocks. that went up and down? Down. It was in All Washington, D.C. I know, but mm-hmm. there was one in Washington, D.C. that then boogie, they started Boogie's Diner. Oh, my God. There was there were so many of them. I mean, back in the 90s, there was yeah. a lot of small, there was an opportunity yeah. for a small and mid-cap stock. Right. A lot of those companies went public. A lot of them sort of, you know, rode the plan that they had been yeah. doing as private companies, and then that stalled out, and they had to think about reinventing themselves. Right. It was really a fascinating way. time, because I, cover, I covered retail. I don't yeah. know if you know that for the yeah, Washington Post. Yeah, I do Post. know that. Yeah. And so there was one company that was local to Washington, and they started something called Boogie's Diner, but they had a bigger chain. They went public. 
And I remember covering it and saying to the CEO, you're one uh, pedal pushers away from disaster if you pick the wrong pedal pushers because it was such a trend-oriented routine yeah. kind of thing. And, I, and he was like, what does that mean? I'm like, I just don't understand how you're going to stay in business. You're never going to get the right turn. You're going to miss a turn no matter how you— Those businesses yeah. really require you to find a balance yeah. between being in tune with your customer and then leading your customer. Right. And then obviously having the right processes in place to figure out what inventory do you buy, right. how exactly. much of it, and how do you monitor right. that? Rip when do you mark? No, not When jeans. do you mark it down? You right. Know? right. Anyway, so I, I like fell in love with the with investing uh-huh. because I found a way to be successful in marrying the qualitative and the quantitative. And right. I think at that time, like I was a good employee. And I kind of think about that as like chapter one of mm-hmm. my career. Right. So chapter two really was about discovering myself and mm-hmm. kind of. Um, asking a lot of questions and doing a lot of kind of internal searching. But it was catalyzed by this moment where I was at this job, I was doing a good job, I was getting the promotion I needed to, and the bank went through two mergers. Mm -hmm. And my team got displaced. I got displaced. And suddenly I found myself as somebody who had put so much of my identity and my effort and everything into my being a good employee. I'm a bad employee. And I was gone. And so I allowed myself temporarily to feel like a victim and said, I'm never going to put myself in a situation where I'm there again. And that coincided with some changes that were happening in the market. Mm -hmm. You know, now we're kind of into the early, mid-2000s. The cycle has really played out. We've been through the tech boom, the tech bust, kind of reconciling what's going on with the consumer. And the conversation, particularly in retail, had moved to, we've overstored the country, everybody needs, you know, internet's taken over, stores are going away. Mm-hmm. And being a public market investor was less about bringing some new differentiated thinking and more about really kind of financial engineering, how you're sure, going to get things. Sure, absolutely. And, and this was, I had covered uh, Dayton Hudson, everybody. I yeah. had covered all the, you know, all the local retailers going into business. So you stuck in teen stocks. You were like, you were, were there any well, tech companies you were looking at at the time? So I was part of the retail group. Right. I was specifically covering like the teen retail stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was on the sell side. I moved over internally at Montgomery over to the buy side. Now I was with a team that was managing, you know, investments across right. a spectrum. I was looking at kind of the consumer, fo- retail, hospitality, services, product companies. Mm-hmm. Tech was starting to become more relevant in mm-hmm. that space because of Amazon, right. because of eBay, because of that change that we've seen play out over the last two decades, right? But they weren't true, you know, internet stocks. They right. were retail stocks, mm-hmm. really. Right. So... You know, I get myself in this place where it's like I'm I'm kind of questioning. I'm questioning my role as an employee. I'm questioning the safety of that. Remember, that was part of the reason yeah, I yeah. was there in the first place. Sure. The markets have changed, and I think to myself, like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my life or my mm-hmm. career. And so I left the job without a particular, you know, without the Which next job. Without, I find this really unusual. That was people don't do that. Unusual do for that. me yeah. in particular. I was a safety girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I really wanted to know when I was 25, like where my health insurance and my 401k plan was coming mm-hmm. from. But at that point too, I felt compelled to push myself to grow and learn. And I wasn't doing it in the way that I needed to mm-hmm. at that time. So I almost didn't have another choice. And during that time period, I, I said to myself, like, I didn't go to business school. I'm going to use this as my like on the ground business school. I'm going to push myself in ways I haven't been pushed before. I'm going to go out and make meet people and learn how to network or learn how to ask questions. And mm-hmm. I also did a lot of personal stuff. I 
went to therapy. I started painting. I took writing classes. I took <laughs> photography classes. All of that. And I think if somebody had told me that it would be a six-plus-year journey before I had like clear direction on where I was going to mm-hmm. move forward in my career, I might have made a series of different choices. But I'm so glad I didn't, mm-hmm. because I think for me, I really needed to like allow myself to keep a goal out there, but not be so specifically focused on how it unfolded in front Mm -hmm. of me and be open-minded to what that journey looked like. And so, you know, kind of in pursuit of all of that, at the time period, I I did a bunch of consulting work. I made some one-off investments. I raised money from people I'd worked with before to put pools of capital into specific companies. I tried to be helpful. I, you know, took on odd jobs at those companies to learn and all of that was sort of like getting closer and closer to entrepreneurs. And I started mm-hmm. at the public markets, started looking right. at companies that were on growth trajectories, but all already at public companies. And I'm on this pursuit to find my passion. And I get all the way back down to something that's about like, startups. it's about business and right. it's about startups, but it's about people. Mm-hmm. And I found like the second time I really lit up in my career where I could combine those things. Right. And that coincided with a time when there was an advent of new consumer retail-oriented businesses yes. coming to life. All of which were online. Being reimagined. Really. Right. Yeah. Right. They were companies that were using online and digital tools to forge connections with consumers, mm-hmm. but they were thinking, um, I think, a little bit more holistically about the experience. They didn't just have a flat web page and they were selling books or mm-hmm. one thing from it. They were Warby Parker thinking about how do we get in touch with the consumer, provide right. a try-on experience, think about, you know, they were Dollar Shave Club, thinking about how do we meet a customer whose preferences are changing with a product that speaks to him in a mode and a and a shopping um, mode that resonates well, with what him. What did you note about what hap- was happening in retail when, you know, as Amazon started getting bigger? It just seems like it was the slowest moving traffic accident I ever covered. Like, 100%. It was fascinating because I was like, they're coming. They're coming. And I had covered Walmart sort of taking over Main Street, essentially, which yeah. was the Amazon before Amazon, yep. essentially, putting out local businesses. And it was so obvious what was happening, you know, and especially, you know, and, and then when Amazon got there, I was like, they're going to move into adjacent businesses every single day of the week. Like, they're just going to go from one to the next to the next because it makes sense, you know, from a strategic point of view. And what was interesting is retailers, I remember uh, Barnes & Noble, all kinds of them, like, it, whatever area they were in, it was sort of caught flat-footed for some reason. And I, I, I was always trying to figure out why when it seemed so obvious. I think that, like, people, like human nature is, you sort of, you know, think that you have advantages or strengths or, or opportunities that other people aren't going to s- be able to seize in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so while they saw them encroaching on parts of their business, I don't right. think they felt like it was going to be, you know, the the end of their business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would push them to think about, okay, we can't just have stores. We have to have an online business to compete sure. here too. Right. But not that our stores or that our service or our value proposition will become irrelevant. How did you point of view on that? Because you would cover... You know, being part of that industry, you're part of that industry, even if you're covering it from outside. I think I always led my thinking, and I continue to, with where the consumer is going. Right. What does the consumer want? So where would the penny drop for you? Where did you go, hmm, this is something, these companies are ones I want to put money into versus something else? Was there an investment where you thought this is, this is going to, is there was a consumer experience that hit you at any point? It may not have. Well, when I 
left my job at Montgomery Securities, having covered retail stocks, having invested in retail in a you know modestly mm-hmm. expanded group of companies, I did think that I wanted to leverage that experience. I mm-hmm. did feel like I had really learned again how to kind of marry some instincts around the consumer and some understanding of that behavior with the investments or with the business models, and I wanted to lean into that. But part of the reason I made the move to quit my job and kind of send myself on that other trajectory at that time was because the cycle had played out. The Mm -hmm. businesses weren't that interesting anymore. There was a big threat from online, and everybody's attitude was either I've got to close up shop or or no change is going to happen, and neither of those seemed like the right things to invest in. So I was open-minded about what that would look like, and Mm -hmm. along the way, I, I think part of the path of it being six years before I had the idea of, like, now the time is right for Forerunner had to do with the fact that I met a lot of businesses along the way that just didn't seem that interesting or that differentiated. They were, like, incrementally different, but they weren't necessarily, like, moving the needle forward the way that the world was moving forward. You know, it was interesting. When I was at the Washington Post, I remember seeing some of the early internet stuff, and that's when I started covering it. And I literally, one day, I was like, we are fucked. Yeah. This whole thing is going to collapse our businesses. And it was just, it was a day. Like, we're classifieds. I was trying to place a classified. I'm like... This is going to be all digital, like, and it was, right. and then I was like, and then, and then, and then, and so it was a really interesting moment from a media point of view, and, and as scary as intimidating yeah, as that yeah. moment is, that's the moment of change right. and opportunity. Right. Was right. there was there company? So you start. How did you decide to then start Forerunner, which was you named it because you're in front of people, right? <laughs> yes, <Presumably. yeah>. I did. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to pick a name. Yeah, that one that one came to me, and I think it's stuck and it works. Um, so I'd been on this path of investing in kind of early stage companies. Mm-hmm. There were some common connected themes, and a lot of it had to do with, yes, good business and good business fundamentals that I felt like were in the path of progress, but also afforded me the opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. And at some point along the way, while I was honing a thesis and getting kind of more clarity around on what did it take to get a company off the ground, how would you think about kind of really having something where you could metric milestones along the way, which I think mm-hmm. is a really important thing for venture Absolutely. business, right? Which is you which have to be able to put one foot in front of the other and prove out parts of your thesis to kind of earn your way into the next thing and earn Mm -hmm. way into your next fundraise. And um, that really wasn't very possible in retail before. You had to have a lot of money to open up a store, and it took a long time before you figured out. So, you know, that dynamic was unfolding as businesses were moving digital. And I had still been stuck in this, like, what I felt like was this one-dimensional view of, like, what a great retail experience has been until suddenly there were some opportunities that caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And the two that kind of stand out as early investments in my angel fund um, along those lines were Warby Parker and Birchbox. And Mm -hmm. both those teams were in business school. And to me, they were thinking about the consumer, where the consumer was headed. They were thinking about how do we meet them with an offering in a category that needs to be reinvented to meet right. that need. Right, broken. Right? The glasses so, you know, you look at the beauty space, it's a five, six billion dollar business in department stores. It's cultivated off of sampling and trial and people aren't going to the department stores anymore. That, mm-hmm. So how do you how do you reinvent that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, this was a new day. This was, a, this was where there was young, fresh energy coming to the category with unique ways of thinking about reaching consumers with different offerings. And we could metric 
their progress as it went along, and that made it feel like it could work in the context of this type of investing. And so those, talk about Warby Parker. What, what, what did you see in that? Obviously, the optical market had been so broken for so, like, just And I'd follow, and local, I'd follow and local. Luxottica, right. you know, as, right. a, as an investor in the public mm-hmm. markets for a long time and really knew kind of their monopoly position and mm-hmm. what the advantages they had, but what the, what the disadvantages for the consumer and what the other needs in the market mm-hmm. were. But truly, Warby Parker was as much about the team as anything. Mm-hmm. I met them when they were in business school. They came and, you know, shared this idea, the vision for the brand, the vision for, like, the value proposition on the glasses and how how they would reach consumers in new and unique ways. And a lot of it, I thought, was going to be very tough to pull off, mm-hmm. particularly this idea of this home try-on. Like, how would you have inventory out on on loan? You know, how would you get it back on time? What would the float look like on that? And what mm-hmm. would the economics of that be? But I met with them probably over the course of five times. Where'd you find them? Well, during that time period where I was, like, making myself available for learning, I was mm-hmm. meeting everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, I was, like, open for learning. Not open for business because I didn't have any money to invest at the time, but mm-hmm. I was open for learning. And I'd sit in coffee shops with people and, like, literally bat around their ideas and try to push the thinking somehow. And and knowing one group, of, I mean, it becomes a small ecosystem. Right. I met some right. people at Stanford. I got to know some people at Wharton, you know. So, anyways, um, what really stood out with them was they were— thinking tactically about the business, going and executing on the plan, coming back with learnings, and pushing the thinking forward. And to me, I was like, these are the kinds of people that mm-hmm. I think could be successful. Right. And maybe the idea right now isn't what the ultimate idea is, but mm-hmm. they are going to execute their way into something because right. they keep learning as they're going. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was as much about the people as anything in a big space that needed disruption, right. which I think is a lot about what this business is. Mm-hmm. And that sort of validated part of what I thought about it, me being suited for it, was kind of marrying those two together. Mm -hmm. And so you started, where did you start to raise your money to start with? So I had a, so in 2010, I raised an angel fund. Mm -hmm. And I had an initial single investor and someone I'd known for 20 years who I developed a rapport with. He was a hedge fund investor, a really successful one. Um, we had compared notes all along kind of the journey of me learning and him investing. And I think we'd grown to like and respect each other. And he'd offered me a job a couple of times. And I'd been sharing what I was working on and the kinds of companies that I, you know, where mm-hmm. I thought the market was going and the companies that were unfolding and where there was opportunity. And then I came with these couple of companies that I was really excited about investing in. And he said, you know, you're clearly passionate about that and want to do it. What is it going to take to get into that business? Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought having an angel fund would be a great way to prove right. that I could edit a set of companies. I'd already proven that I could invest and partner with companies because mm-hmm. I had a handful of companies doing that. But I was always raising money, pitching the company as right, much as anything. Now I needed to pitch like my view of the market and where the opportunity was. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, we're, we've been talking about some specific companies, but at that point in time, like on a category level, it was about the consumer really pushing a new path to purchase. And how that was upending the whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, now everybody had access to information and um, and influence digitally in their pocket, in their hand. And they were learning about companies through the social networks. They yep. were learning about companies online through friends. They could look them up. And in doing that, that kind of made it more important for brands to have a 
face forward with companies to be able to right. kind of have a website. Right. The natural evolution of that was that a consumer thought I should be able to buy here. So it forced brands to think about how do we become retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, it then forced them to rethink about their relationship with retailers. And as people had more places to shop and different paths to purchase, I think retailers had to be get more clarity around what their role was. Right. And a lot of this ultimately, like, forced reorganization in that ecosystem. Right, absolutely. And people to re-explore their business models. And that's where the opportunity has been that we, you know, kind of initial, Forerunner's initial wedge into the market was to explore that change in that ecosystem. How it had changed, which yeah. was sort of obvious everything. When we get back, I want to talk about that with mo- about what mo- mobile changed everything in social yes. media at the same time, which you've taken great advantage of. We're here with Kirsten Green. She's a founder and managing director of Forerunner Ventures. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, so their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're here with Kirsten Green. She's the founder and managing director of Forerunner. She's invested in all kinds of fascinating companies, focused a lot on the retail space, Glossier, Ritual, Dollar Shave Club, and many others. Talk a little bit about the advent of the consumer being part of the experience, because typically just the way newspapers were, they edited them and then you read them. TV or entertainment, they made it, you consumed it. Yeah. Um, the store retail, put the, the offering, store put together, the offering together, together, you walked in the door, it, they presented it. Presented it. Yeah. Changed completely with mobile and Changed social, completely. where there was an ongoing dialogue between the consumer and the retailer themselves, which had not taken place before at all, I think, or very in very small ways. I mean, in some ways, it put the consumer in the driver's seat. Right. But it exactly. has across all kinds of industries. Right. You know? right. I really think that that's the consumer that's been driving change kind of across multiple sectors. Um, and particularly in retail, you know, again, they had this digital tool in their pocket. They could go on social media and discover new products, and they could read blogs and discover new products, and there was a lot more consuming of media in general that referenced products. And then they could click through and go to a product page or a company page. Mm -hmm. And so with more kind of information and more agency in the consumer's hands, like, they just played a a bigger role in, in reshaping it. And I think brands felt the 
opportunity to step up to the plate and meet the consumer by, hey, we can. They're coming to us directly. We can sell to them directly. Right. Right. You know? Which should be. I very mean, on a very basic relation. level, you look at it and think that's a better business model if you're a brand. You right. Get the full margin rather than half the margin. Mm-hmm. The truth is, is that. There's a really important role for retailers to play. There is still a lot to be said Which for is curation. Kind of merchandising, merchandising, right? yeah, creating yeah. context for products, yeah. yeah, and then having the service aspect of it too. Which right. the brands have had to get good at. They've had to learn how to pick, pack, and ship, right. and and take or payments service and the orders. customer in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget an interview I do with the head of Crate and Barrel. This old guy, yeah. he's fantastic, and he essentially bought a twenty cent plate in Thailand or wherever he got it from, and managed to put all this stuff around it and then sell it for eight dollars. And yeah. I was always fascinated. Merchandising was merchandising, and that was my issue with Amazon in the, in the beginning. A lot of these retailers is they didn't know merchandising very well, which I think was a critical part of any retail experience. Actually, I still think it is. Yeah. I still think it is like one of the holdbacks from from total domination of those platforms. Right. Is that it's they're not it's, they're not making you want it or have an emotional yeah. relate. Like it, I think Glossier does. It's a delightful versus, experience in right. terms of the fact that you do one click and then it shows up next that's day. Convenient. It's not but delightful. That's it. Right, it's that's convenient. convenience. Right. It is not, like, it's not inspiring. It's not, um, it's not fun. It's certainly not emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and rarely do you go down the rabbit hole of finding a new thing that you want to buy. Right. You're really right. kind of executing a transaction right. versus kind of engaging in yeah, it's very fast and dirty. And, discovery. And, a little, and dirty. You feel badly on many levels because you're not using local retailers, but you can't find those things, you know, because it's all there, which is kind of fascinating. Well, I think there's so many things that are on the consumer's mind right now mm-hmm. that stand to undermine some mm-hmm. of those big platforms of business. Well, we're going to talk about— you look at Gen yeah. Z coming out. Yes, yeah. completely. My kids yeah. hate boxes. I don't know how they to explain it. And they hate delivery. I love the conscious consciousness yeah. of Gen Z. Yeah, I it's, have. It, it's, it's, it, I agree. It's where we find hope. Having Gen days. Z children. And now I have an alpha children. <laughs> I guess oh, Gen yeah, Alpha. Wow. Gen Alpha. You've got a great learning lab Omega? for decades. I know, Car- for decades. <laughs> so you, you raised how much with 400? You okay, had this so, venture. Yes. You had an angel fund of small— I had a small angel fund— I had $5 million. $5 million. Wow. And I really took that opportunity to, one, establish this portfolio mm-hmm. and look at the ecosystem mm-hmm. and, in venture. It was like my first time I was really playing in the venture ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. I've kind of been on the outskirts this whole time. And watching what, you know, which firms mattered and why they mattered and what change was happening. And that was a time period where there was a handful of kind of micro VC firms that had mm-hmm. started. And that was sort of born out of the lean startup and mm-hmm. they were, you know, being nimble and they were investing in the most exciting companies. And I thought I could why I not could, me? Why not me? Mm-hmm. Why not me? I could do that. And I thought that, but the reality too was that I had this particular view on the market and I had honed um, a thesis around a particular set of companies. And nobody was begging me to add that to their portfolio. Well, of they also to do weren't either. investing in that area. Everyone when Amazon won, essentially. I think that's what they, the mentality was. You couldn't get them interested in e-commerce. And, you know, there had been some investments like Nasty Gal and some others, but they had not had a great interest in commerce. And this was, well, and when I started Forerunner, was even predating that. Right, exactly. You know? So actually, the first investment I made as kind of true Forerunner in our mm-hmm. first institutional fund was Dollar Shave Club. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that wanted guy. to chip in on yeah. Dollar Shave Club yeah. because they were compelled by Michael. Right. And they thought the ad was magical. This is the founder. He, yeah. He, he did yeah, sorry, wonderful. Michael Dubin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to lead that investment because I also thought the founder was magical mm-hmm. and the ad was hysterical, u- unique. Right. <laughs> but 
more importantly, I felt like he was really understanding the change that was happening with his consumer and the change that the CPG industry would be facing or mm-hmm. was already, you know, well into facing right. in terms of, like, they didn't have a touchstone to their consumer. They didn't have that information no, and data. And in 2010, 2012, it was you. a time when we were really talking about the importance of data in your business mm-hmm. and the importance of kind of using that to understand who your audience is and what products you should mm-hmm. bring to market and how you should price them and how you should talk about them and all of that. And so, you know, I felt like that was, it was an incredibly exciting move forward for the mm-hmm. business. And he was at the right time in the right place with a compelling ad and a compelling conversation. And a very particular market. Social media, you know. A very particular market where men bought market. everything in a drugstore, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they just and, and when I met him, he really told the story of the consumer and mm-hmm. the challenge they were facing and how he thought he could what address was your it worry in a bigger with way. That was that it was a, that these big companies would figure it out. And well, my original worry before I even met Michael, when I just heard about the investment, mm-hmm. was razors, five dollar razors or whatever dollar razors, mm-hmm. like low ticket item, mm-hmm. low margin item super hard to have enough dollars for all the other things it takes to run those business. At some point, people thought like, oh, if you go direct to consumer, you can cut out all the margin. It's not true. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is like it's your costs cost. are just flipping around in different ways. Right. And you still need to have a healthy product margin. You still mm-hmm. need to have a healthy absolute dollars so that you can support it with great marketing, with great customer service, which is there's there's no way to cut corners on great customer service. The right. customer expects it. You got to, A lot of times you've got to figure out how to work shipping into your model and fulfillment and all of that. And then you still need a team. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not getting simpler to do business. You mm-hmm. now have all the things you've always had, plus all the tech needs. Right. So originally, I looked at it and I thought, like, low ticket item, low generally ticket. low margin item, in a space where there's a juggernaut competitor right. with billions of dollars. Right. Like, if A&G, I've got a few yeah. things to do a year, this might not be something I have right. to do. When I met Michael, like, he really, you know, one, he had that founder fit, which we kind of think is one of our north star traits, which is somebody who could become known for their company, somebody who has enough vision and confidence that they could compel the resources they need, which is investors, team members, and ultimately customers. Mm -hmm. And then an understanding of kind of like what urgency were they playing to and how would they balance that against long-term fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And he described what was going on with a customer and how a customer was shifting and how the ecosystem was changing and how he could come up with a better business model to meet a customer need that wasn't otherwise being met. And razors were just an entree into that market. Right, because it was It was a bigger package. Right, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I think that, like, in 2012, it was still early days for what has now become D2C kind of companies. Direct to consumer. And he had a, sorry, yeah, he had a, you know, he had a, he had a vision for, like, a compelling big opportunity and a unique model playing amongst CPG companies that are global conglomerates Mm -hmm. with multi-massive budgets. And... Facebook was still new territory in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways for advertising, and the timing was good to exploit that Mm -hmm. in the most positive ways. Right. Right? I mean, you can't count on that to go forever, but I do think a startup, when I think about timeliness relative to a startup, Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to be able to exploit something new. Absolutely. You know, in the market and make that really work for you. And then you need to continue to evolve and grow and find the new channels. And and that's what you need to do as a company long term. A fit, too, because I remember some mustard people coming to me. Do you remember 
they did the Dijon mustard thing on Facebook. <laughs> I was like, this is not going to work. This is not This is not how people think about mustard. It's like, not. Well, so then that's where you get kind of back to right. the well, intuition part of people right. and the funny, understanding about people. We had a guy from, come to my conference, the co-conference, every year from Hellman's. <laughs> yeah. He's like, how can Hellman's get digital? I'm like, they can't. Yeah. You just can't. There's I've no had, way to sell I've had a lot of those conversations You know what I mean? Like, the I, there's no new way to sell mayonnaise. I don't know how you can get people interested in mayonnaise in a way you, you're interested in more people. I Parker. appreciate every company trying know, to think about I know, how they can invent like, for the happening. future. But I, at some point— He would get up, and I'd, at, by the fifth year, I was like, no. We yeah. still don't—we'll get back to you yeah. next year, um, which was very funny at, at one point. But the, certain companies did fit in that genre. They had to be sassy. They had to be interesting and innovative and And they had quick. to be at the forefront of the right. change. Right, exactly. You know, I think there's a lot of companies that are still doing interesting things in, let's call it, the direct-to-consumer space. Mm-hmm. They have compelling products. They have compelling marketing messages. They have compelling value propositions. There's probably a good business to build there. Does it necessarily fit the venture model? Are they doing something that, you know, are they Mm -hmm. in a moment in time where they can, again, exploit one of those efficiencies to have breakout success? Are they leading the path towards something new, which makes them kind of either invaluable to an incumbent or it makes them get scale faster because they're ahead of the curve? Like, I don't know. Yeah. So the other one that you obviously has gotten so much, and then you sold Dollar Shave Club. We did. Why sell if you were on the cusp of greatness? Michael had a lot of deep understanding about his business Mm -hmm. and a real vision for where it needed to go. And at that point in time, he felt strongly that it would benefit from having a partner, Mm -hmm. a partner of that scale. And he also felt like that company was valuing the things that were really unique about the business, that we had created a new channel that they couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's, it is it is a really tricky moment where it's mm-hmm. like you could keep pressing forward on your own and get a little more value out of it. Right. But I think he felt like the journey that we'd been on for the four years that we'd been there, the value that had been created in that time period, right. and thinking about how to navigate the next chapter, right. it felt like— The possibility that they're going to catch you yeah. the, in some spaces. I think it one. was a really well thought out and, like, wise move on his part, mm-hmm. and he drove that decision. Right, and you're fine with that because several of your companies have done that, right? You've had several— Exits. I think that that's important, right? I mean, it's important to get in in the right way, and it's important to get out in the right way. And sure, we all want to try to maximize what the opportunity is, Mm -hmm. but you could debate that along the way. And I Mm -hmm. think when enough things align and if a founder feels like that's the right thing to do for the company, that's generally the right thing to do for the investors. Right, right. All right, so Glossier, another one. That's been a fascinating ride for you. That was you know, that was also about intuition on people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I met Emily early on. She mm-hmm. had a— This is Emily Weiss. I'm sorry, Emily Weiss, yeah. Mm-hmm. She had a blog, Into the Gloss. Mm-hmm. She had started it all on her own. Right, so it was she a media a, company It was start. a media company. Right. She had a camera, she had a notepad. Which a lot and of— And she had, lot like, ambition to go out and talk to people. Yeah, there, there were. were. But she wrote more in-depth pieces. Mm-hmm. She had a franchise called Top Shelf mm-hmm. that really kind of, I think, became something people wanted to read at whatever day of the week it sure. was she published. But most importantly through that, she had a really deep understanding of that audience. Mm-hmm. And she had an idea about like where they wanted someone to take them or go or what was missing from mm-hmm. the market. And she wanted to fill that. And when I initially met with her, she had, you know, what I think of as like multiple business ideas that she had packaged up in one. Mm-hmm. And I felt that maybe one of them was great, maybe five of them were great, mm-hmm. but one would be too hard to do all those things at once. And But I, I thought her understanding and her ambition for the opportunity was so unique that I was, I was captured by the, mm-hmm. 
opportunity to Why build that? a business. Because there's with her. so many beauty. I mean, it's such a large and confusing market, and so many different players. Again, she didn't on pitch, all levels. So it was interesting, right? She didn't pitch a product. She didn't pitch a brand. There was no Glossier. Mm-hmm. She talked about a consumer. She talked about a change that was happening in the space. She talked about a void that she saw when she thought about all the products they were covering or where the consumer was going. She had a view on like mm-hmm. what was missing in the market, and she wanted to meet that need. And it was part one part product. It was one part inspiration and brand, and it was one part in how you reach them. And also using the consumers to vet the products that you're 100%. Making. Right. Right. So right. It, was a, it was a much more holistic a- approach right. to a beauty company. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, here's a beautiful new product. It's a great ingredient story. Right, yeah. Like, let's build a business. Like, right. I think there's good businesses to build there again, but is that a venture business? I, mm-hmm. I don't know, right? right. I think in, Emily wanted to say, this industry is changing. This customer doesn't want to go to the drugstore or the department store on their own. They want to talk to people and share and right. kind of get ideas from each other. They're also, you know, she also had a view, which ultimately became Glossier, on like what product and messaging and product was missing in the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was inspired by her. By the idea of making products. And the amount of SKUs she has are so low. That's, you know, I think people, of course, criticize it for that. that there should be more SKU, more things that she's offering. It's and, a long journey ahead. There's yeah. plenty of time to do more SKUs, but yeah. I think we were very deliberate. She yeah. was very deliberate about wanting to make the most of each one right. and be thoughtful about No, I know that. I think, I think, she, I yeah. hate to say it, but I think she's right. When I was thinking about it, I've I, I heard all the criticism back and forth about that. About And I was like, you know what? That Freaking moist, that freaking face cleanser, that milky gel, it's the best one. I don't know how to explain it. It's the best product. Everyone I use is the best product. She and, and her team are maniacal it, about it. And I'm that, like, not right? a teen. Like, that's yeah. the thing. And it's fascinating. I don't know why. I'm, is it is it the, the way they design the packaging? It's actually the product. I, it, it sounds crazy, but the actual product is pleasing in a way that I can't explain why it's different than anything I'd grab, like CeraVe, whatever. But I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is yeah. like, customers are smart. Customers are savvy, mm-hmm. and, like, you really have to deliver value to them. If you have a crappy product, they might buy it once, but they won't buy it again. Mm-hmm. If you have a cheap product, they might be motivated to try it, but they might not buy it again. If it, mm-hmm. you know, So I think, like, that's table stakes in a lot of ways, building a great product. Mm-hmm. I think the win comes when you have a unique approach to the market and mm-hmm. you have a unique way of connecting with it that's underpinned by a business model that makes sense. So how far can you take an idea like Glossier? Because, you know, people, again, this seems like it could get bought. It could get, you know, you have stores now, which are fascinating. I went to the one in Los Angeles, and which was crazy. You know, mothers and daughters in there. You know, it was an experiential situation. I think one of the most fun things is when you go to into any Glossier store, yeah. you look around to see who's in the store. Mm-hmm. And... It's a little bit of everybody. Oh, it is. It was. It was. It was. Which is cool. It was gay guys, daughters, mothers yeah. together. There's a lot of daughters, mothers, yeah. which was interesting. Yeah. And then people like me, like, what was yeah. I doing there? And then doing selfies and and people ex- who love makeup and people yes. who don't care about makeup. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a very you know, I think the thing store. about Glossier that is hard to just put in a sentence together, but it really elicits a feeling. Mm-hmm. And you know, I kind of think about. You say, where can it go? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is that's really Emily's story to tell. Mm-hmm. But I would, in my fantasy world, I think about Nike starting mm-hmm. with a shoe and starting with inspiration and saying, you know, just do it. Like, go be a champion. Mm-hmm. Wear this shoe as part of your journey in doing that. But Nike is, is they have great products, but they're about a feeling. People buy into it because of a feeling, because they want to be part of that tribe or that movement, or they want to find that inner champion in themselves. I think that Glossier cultivates a lot of that, too. Mm-hmm. And I think a big theme is to be you. You know, to be the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, beauty comes in all kinds of 
forms and looks and packages yeah, there's and not shapes and whatever. Models. There's no. not. There's none of that. There's. It's a collective. Yeah. Right. And I think that like. Do you have a spokesmodel? No, you. No, we don't. No, you don't. We don't. And we don't even use the same set of models. We've yeah. moved models over time. Yeah. You know? And yeah, I think yeah. Emily is very conscious about the balance that she plays in terms of being a figurehead for the company, but not being the face of the company. Right. You know? And you do you imagine more stores? Because that's always the move, right? Warby Parker certainly has a lot of stores everywhere. It's, honestly, it's hard not to imagine doing more stores considering what happens in those stores. And what is that relationship, the store to the online company? Because, you know, you see there's there's a block in D.C. that Glossier is not there, but I'm waiting for Glossier to yeah. open there. But, you know, there's a Bonobos. There's, like, there's one of each. There's a Warby Parker. There, there are all these online things that have then become real. Um, real boys, I guess, or girls, boys and girls, but... I've kind of always believed this, that I think that the best companies, like the opportunity, if not the demand today, is to meet the customer where they want it, when they want it, how Mm -hmm. they want it. And so customers don't want to live their whole life online. Mm -hmm. The good news is I think people are moving back to the middle. Mm -hmm. We had an analog world, we moved to a digital world, and now people are realizing that they want to have relationships. They want to be in person. They want to touch and feel. They want to convene with each other, and they're moving back to the middle. And I think to have a big business that, like, reaches a lot of people, that satisfies a lot of dimensions, you have to learn how to operate on all of them. So I don't even think about e-commerce anymore. I don't even think about D2C anymore. Mm -hmm. I just think about building a business in 2020 and all of the different kinds of ways that you need to have a touchstone to your customer. But they're all Actually, more than anything, kind of the different opportunities to have a connection to your customer. But they're all brand-oriented, not store-oriented. They're all brand-oriented. All of them. For sure. Yeah, because you buy a brand now. All my kids do do is buy brands I think brand has always been important. Mm -hmm. But I think brand today and going forward is as or more important than Agreed. ever. Agreed. Right? Watching my kids with sneakers, is they don't care where they go. I them. think one of the also encouraging things that are happening is people are becoming, like, idea-focused. They want to be part of ideas. They want to be part of movements. They want to stand for things. And they want to find different ways to express that and connect with that. And companies have always been a way to do that. But today, because you can interact with them on Instagram, or you can interact with them on this in a store, or you know all all these different multi-dimensionals. Like there's a lot of deep, it's a deeper connection that yeah, form. Yeah, hundred percent. When we get back, I want to talk about that because my son literally just bought a puffy sweatshirt he found on Instagram. He's like, I don't believe it, but Instagram ads are working for me. Yeah. Like it was interesting. He was wearing it. And it was odd, but he bought it. Yeah. When we get back, we're going to talk to Kirsten Green. She's the founder and managing director of Forerunner Ventures. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. 
Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built for business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel V Pro is here to help. Intel V Pro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel V Pro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel V Pro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash ITheroes. We're here with Kirsten Green having a fascinating conversation of where uh, retail is really going, but a lot of things. What is a mistake you made? Is there a mistake? Oh, like, Kara, this is a podcast long enough for mistakes. <laughs> what mean, is something where you went, ah, that was not the right—where was your instinct off? Because you seem to have an unerring instinct for a lot of these companies, when to sell, when to invest in them. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate to work with a whole group of dynamic, amazing founders who are all mm-hmm. showing up every day and trying their hardest. Some of them— have more stars aligned than others and and really have big breakouts. And I feel incredibly grateful to have a good number of those in our mm-hmm. portfolio. We have 80-some companies. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of them that have been harder what's the, than we what's would have the, expected. What's the, you don't have to name one in yeah. particular, but what's the commonality of the problem that, that you maybe miss something? So I kind of think about—I'm going to talk in generalities mm-hmm. and then answer, like four state or four types of kind of startups in their early days— Let's assume everybody starts with a big market opportunity that's going through transition or that's mm-hmm. new to the market, and they have a novel idea of how they're right. going to approach it. Whatever the product. You go to market, and your hypothesis was wrong. You know, either the timing was wrong, or the value prop that you were leading with was wrong, or your approach on entering the market didn't fly, and it just it doesn't go where anybody wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. Number two is you enter the market with the same set of things, and some of them are right, and some of them aren't quite clicking. And Mm -hmm. so you're kind of on a choppy path to try to figure out, like, what is the right combination of things where you can get some traction? Mm -hmm. But you have enough insight and enough things that are working that you can kind of keep clicking them Mm -hmm. to start to keep the journey moving forward. The third one is a company that's, like, has a plan, goes to market, hits the plan. And everybody feels optimistic that it's working. Like, the initial idea looks like it was good, and the market looks like it was ready for it, and things are kind of moving in the right direction solidly. And then the fourth type of company has that same setup, but I think they have a priority around kind of what type of culture they're building, what type of people they're hiring, how they're building teams, and how they're empowering people. And they get those people on on board, and they're able to unlock the best versions of themselves or their contributions, and they start uncovering, like, another opportunity right. or another layer or right. another avenue. Oh, Amazon. And they accelerate even yeah. faster, you know? Yeah. And I think that, like, I guess if you're asking me what the difference in the breakout is, it's, like, beyond just having the right idea at the right time, it's getting the right people on board right. so, and unlocking so the right opportunity. Because, because D2C has really seen so many so many people in this now. And, you yeah. you know, you're seeing struggles, like, at Away. Are you, you're not at Away, are you? We are. You are in Away. Yes. Can you talk about that, like, what's happening there? 
here's a great product people love. My kids love these bags. They think they're great. It has, it, you know, there's all kinds of competitors going on there. They, you know, they struck a chord in mm-hmm. a big way. Mm-hmm. When we first met that team, Steph and Jen, back mm-hmm. in 2014, you know, ironically or not ironically, there was a couple of suitcase companies pitching. Sure. And it always stood out to Yuri and I at the time who were working closely together on that was that those two came in and they didn't pitch a suitcase company. They pitched a generation of people who were more adventurous than ever. They mm-hmm. wanted to travel. They were getting travel, up and yes, going. Yes. They were, you know, out on the move learning and exploring. And they wanted to create a brand that resonated with that group. And the go-to-market for that brand was a suitcase. And they've done an incredible job executing on that. I think they've really inspired people to, to think about travel different and to mm-hmm. feel like, I have a suitcase, I'm part of that club. And the business has been on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, the business of startups is messy. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's no play—nobody has a playbook. If you, if you are building something truly new and different and you're trying to do it that way, you don't have a playbook. Mm-hmm. You're making it up as you go along. And you—you know, we, we kind of talk about the importance of staying nimble. You want to make that be your advantage. You want to be able to kind of take learnings quickly and put them back into the machine and come mm-hmm. out and make them better. Sure. But while you're doing that, you're building a team and you're trying to get processes in place. And it's actually impossible to get everything to line up. Mm-hmm. There are peaks and valleys in every startup. And I don't care if you have a startup that you know looks like on the outside it goes straight up and to the right. It's just a line that like means to that because so what there's do you do tons in a of situation like that where you have a product that fits the market really well. There's obviously massive competitors just lying in wait. You know, when I searched away on, you know, I think I interviewed them and they're talking about not being on Amazon because they just steal their data essentially. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you you search on Amazon for a way and you get a bag that looks like their stuff. And 100%. then they're facing all these public relations problems. Well, they're more than that, but the, of, of the CEO managing badly, I guess, at the in, in the kindest way. That's the kindest way to put it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think Who, that— Whom you replaced? Who you replaced? We didn't—nobody n- involved with the company replaced mm-hmm. the CEO. Right. That was a team-led decision. Mm-hmm. And I think back to this idea of, like, you know, startups are a messy journey. Mm-hmm. I think most people, by and large, are trying to do their best to navigate through that. Mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out how to be leaders while they build companies yes, and grow that companies. Is, that is both a and benefit and a bane And to of... do that under the microscope, mm-hmm. under the pressure that maybe you've invited or created for yourself by mm-hmm. all the attention that's been given. But nonetheless, it's pressure and it's real. Mm-hmm. And under the microscope of a world that sort of does like to... As much as I, I like to think we like to celebrate successes, we also like to kind mm-hmm. of rubberneck at the disasters, right. Right? right? Right. And to try to do all of that in that kind of environment, like, it's it's really tough. Yeah. It's 100%. really tough. You know, I think that to their credit, they had an incredible three, four years of growth. And we're very much 2019 was about building the executive team up. Right. They added eight to nine C-suite, SVP, VP type people. And you know, were in the process of kind of making sure that they were ready for the next leg of growth. Which is execution. You know, which is which, execution. Which is execution. So, so what do you do when you have that? What, when you have something that's very clearly a product success and you have difficulty in that way, you're going to see that in most of the companies. You most of the in. companies. Right. Well, I think, okay, so a lot of what was reported in that story was a 2018. Mm-hmm. And the, solu- the you know, this the, the, the path forward, yes, excuse me, sorry, okay. um, was really about we need to build out the senior team. Mm-hmm. Like we've had incredible people that have, you know, thrown themselves into building this company, but we need to bring in experience. We need to bring in senior leaders. We mm-hmm. need to create more process. And that's what this last year has really been about for the company. So, you know, the timing of the article, like not to get into it too mm-hmm. much, but was like, 
ironic and unfortunate mm-hmm. because it was a look back. Right. And didn't get of any credit. It's been festering with a lot of people. And here, you know, just the same thing you're talking about, uh, consumers being loudmouth, you know, about what they're like and don't. Employees, employees can. Yeah. Yeah, that's the day and age we live in. Right. You know, like consumers and employees are going to hold everybody accountable. Mm -hmm. I actually feel pretty good about that. Right. Right. And even be kind of a pain in the neck, too. Like maybe not. 100%. I mean, consumers are hard to please these days. So when you look at at something, I'll get away from away for you. No problem. Um, But the— when you think about these things, where next is what I think is the difficulty for someone like you? Like, do you sell it? Do you keep getting bigger? How do you then determine that? Because obviously you've shown incredible success at figuring out the right company. You've had a, you know, you've had a real hit rate that's really quite yeah. good. But getting to the next level, what is the, what is the challenge you face now as you move? What do you think about the context of yeah. Forerunner? Yeah. So if the goal was, and the goal was at the beginning, was to be a great investor mm-hmm. and to build a firm that, that mattered, that could generate top tier. UNX is not just in dollar shape, but where else have you done? In Jet, Jet. in Bonobos, Bonobos, in Stadium Goods. Yeah, you've had all of like that. Jet sold to Walmart. Yep. Bonobos sold to Walmart. Walmart. Stadium Goods sold to Farfetch. Right. Um, we've had a number of smaller ones. And right. I think, you know, we have a host of companies that I feel like are very promising. Mm-hmm. I don't know that these billion-dollar valuations are judges of things. So but what is the market right now? now? So the goal was to build a first-class investment firm mm-hmm. and was to do it on a playbook that we were developing, $750 million uh-huh. under management. And we're about midway through investing out of our fourth core fund. Mm-hmm. And when we went to market in 2012, I thought, I thought of the commerce angle as the wedge. Mm-hmm. It was the thing I knew. It mm-hmm. was the thing I could speak with. I knew how to like look at right. that ecosystem, and it was. We put together what I think are a dynamic group of companies that were addressing mm-hmm. that opportunity. There's B two B companies, there's product companies, there's service companies, the D two C companies, the direct consumer companies have gotten a lot of attention because they're brand and they're in the press. Mm-hmm. But the portfolio actually has a lot more dynamics to it. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about being investor, get back to our early thing, is the variety and the constant opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. If I had to spend my whole career thinking about retail, right. I would be bored. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get bored, you you yes, you, you fall stopped. apart, right? Yeah. I think anybody who was smart and ambitious that wanted to work at Foreigner would feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So what we have always been thinking about laying the groundwork for is like, how do we take how we've looked at this ecosystem, how we've sort of parsed it apart and thought about how the consumer is pushing change, and think about that in the context of other ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm so excited about now is that we've identified a handful of those. Can you talk which, yeah. which one? Are so what, you know, um, probably the next thing that we've been spending a lot of time on as a team is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Great That's figure. a space. I wrote about right? it. Yeah. It's, it's an incredibly important space. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited about investing in companies that matter in areas that are important where mm-hmm. the change really needs to happen. But here's a consumer at the center again. Mm-hmm. They have access to information. They're learning more about their own well-being, what it means to be a healthy person, more about their bodies. And at the same time, there's a healthcare system that has let people down generally. 100%. If you did an NPS on healthcare, I'm sure it'd be very low. Mm-hmm. So the consumer has become more proactive mm-hmm. with how they're going to approach this, which has really made healthcare bleed into wellness, which mm-hmm. has opened up the category in a big way to new products, to new services, to new offerings that consumers are asking for. Mm-hmm. The consumer also has this mindset. Let's talk about, you know, we were talking about how they were addressed in the commerce area where the service has gone up, the brand has gone up, the, the quality of the product's gone up. It hasn't happened in healthcare, and the consumer is 
I think, pushing on why. Mm-hmm. It's failing me. It should be better. Yeah. So it's really challenging that whole ecosystem. And if you put the consumer at the center of that ecosystem rather than, for instance, the doctor where it's mm-hmm. been, it forces everybody to change doctors again. doctors aren't getting good service. No, they aren't getting good service. No. But, you know, I think back, do you remember, like, I don't know if it was like 15 years ago or 20 years ago mm-hmm. when drug companies started mm-hmm. advertising on TV? Yeah. And you still, you know, you can remember a few names because they're attached to silly issues or whatever. But for the most part, I don't think consumers, like, hold on to the messages they hear there. They just know enough to know that, oh, restless leg syndrome is a thing. I should ask my doctor about it. Mm -hmm. But that marketing that the drug companies have done have really been more about the doctors. Mm -hmm. It's been more about resonating with them and connecting with them. And so, you know, the consumer goes into the doctor, asks about restless leg syndrome, and then they make the, the, the product thing. Now, if you kind of flip it on the other way and think about the consumer, like, putting themselves a little bit more in the driver's seat in this situation, and they have more um, agency over what they, you know, they they have more expectation of what they can get. Mm -hmm. And if you have a platform like Hims and Hers that's making Mm -hmm. it more accessible to consumers— Sex. Well, you know, again, it, like it's for let's, condoms. Let's, I actually stuff, right? think it's kind of fun to think about. I keep talking about this wedge thing, it and it really applies to everything. Are. Like, yeah. so hims and hers's wedge into the market yeah. was Is, are you in ED, yeah. Yeah, yeah, was ED erectile dysfunction and um, hair loss, right? Because kind of like razors, that was a category where right. everybody kind of understood like what the issues or the challenges or mm-hmm. whatever the case was. They could make a mark on that. The vision for that company has always been to bring a broader base of products. Health to consumers related. at life, healthcare relate. Like, yeah. let's go direct to consumer on healthcare. Let's bring the doctor to them. Right. Let's not make people take time out of their workday to go to the doctor, mm-hmm. or maybe not go to the doctor because they're embarrassed or uncomfortable mm-hmm. to ask. Let's mm-hmm. like let's come to them. I mean, we have to figure out how to do that and uphold all the standards and mm-hmm. do it with the highest degree of integrity and respect for the process. But we can do that now digitally. Right. Right. All you right. Know? So healthcare. What else? So healthcare education. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a category where kind of in the the lower school primary education, you could argue it's really been falling short. Our yes. status in the world has continued Lots to go down. Um, higher education has become more and more exp- expensive. At the same time, the schools have become more and more impacted. It's harder for people to get in. I've got a fourth grader that's worrying about it. It's just mm-hmm. wrong. You have a fourth grader wor- worrying about it? And the workplace is changing. I know. To I told him not to worry about it. Um, but I guess it picks it up in school. You've got... Um, And you've got a workplace that's changing. You've Mm -hmm. got a generation of people who have already been maybe through their primary education who need to think about how they learn and get new new skills. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of opportunity and need in there. And I think as consumers, like in healthcare, like in commerce, are getting more informed. Can you give me an example? No, we're we're we've been working hard on that space. And so we've got two that we've funded that aren't announced yet, but we're gonna we're gonna look into more healthcare education. I'm. I'm, and our team is really passionate about sustainability. And mm-hmm. when we get, again, to stick with the Gen Z and think about the mm-hmm. consumer coming down the pike and what's important to them and where their mindset is, I think this is not going to be an option for business to not mm-hmm. start thinking about sustainability, 100%. right? And how and, and what does that mean? So that's, you know, maybe less of a front-end business as much as it's, you know, thinking or more thinking about yeah. the back-end of business. Sure. But this is, I think, what we've tried to do that's unique at Forerunner maybe, is to think kind of thematically about these, like, categories of opportunity, how those ecosystems are changing, and then how can we create a diverse group of companies in the context of that ecosystem? So, you know, other people maybe spend time thinking about machine learning or AI, or I think we think those things, we have to learn about those. They're incredibly 
critical to your but business. But they're parts of those businesses right. as opposed to whole opportunities on their own. So I want to finish up talking about, because you're getting to an idea about innovation and where it comes from, because a lot of your companies had been innovative in the retail space yep. particularly. Um, I'm thinking about writing about it this week because I'm really sort of, someone, I was at an event yesterday and I, they asked me, where does innovation come from? And I was like, you know, there hasn't been a lot of innovation. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of innovation, and especially because there's these big companies in your space, Amazon, for yep. example, or it's Google, or it um, seems to me Facebook, Google, and Amazon are the three that are sort of in the way of innovation. At the same time, they kind of have to grow, so they have to reach out to big areas. I mean, Sonos just sued Amazon and Google today, for example, yep. for stealing their speaker ideas. And And how do you get innovative companies with these massive companies that also have the need to grow and, and eat everything like the board? that they are. But I also don't fault them. They've got to I move mean, into adjacent areas. It's really hard. It's right. one of the challenges of business. Mm-hmm. I bet you if you look back 100 years ago and thought about, like, who were the juggernaut companies in mm-hmm. that area, people felt similarly about mm-hmm. that. There were conglomerates. There were companies that were reaching, right. you know, kind of continually beyond their boundaries. At some point, you get so big that you can't do that in the same way and that you need to look outside for some of that new energy sure. or those new ideas. Mm-hmm. Our challenge, I think, as as venture investors is to find those things that might be able to be part of those bigger conglomerates, but still big enough in their own right. Right. You right. Know, but do you to have to—is is, is selling— where does innovation happen? And does it happen also through diversity? You know what I mean? You're well, one of the I mean, few women-led firms until recently. 100% it happens mm-hmm. through diversity. Do you think that's why you have an advantage? I do. Because I do. Being a woman or being just thinking differently or you don't look like most of the venture capitalists I meet. Good thing is there's a lot more women coming mm-hmm. into it. There are. Um, and, and you're in all rays also. I'm in all rays too. And I think it's, you know, it's about, I wish off the top of my head I could reference studies. I know mm-hmm. they're out there mm-hmm. that have said that like diverse yes, teams yes. make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And we've thought about that as Forerunner. I've been operating in the spectrum kind of like in that startup mode, which mm-hmm. is you're under-resourced relative to your ambitions. You have to make sure that everything you do is a one plus one equals three. Mm-hmm. And the part of the, the, the highest impact way we can do that is think about our team. I can't afford to hire two people that look and think the same because mm-hmm. we're not going to get an exponential impact from that. So every time we've been able to hire a new person, which has been like one person a year kind of thing, we've really thought about who could we bring into the mix that would add to this conversation, that mm-hmm. would add to this dynamic, that would push or the thinking something, on something or yeah. see something new. Okay. And I think that's then reflected in a team that has, you know, kind of half males, half females, some people in their 40s, some people in their 30s, some people in their 20s, mm-hmm. people that grew up in different places, people from different races, people right. who had different paths to education. And I feel like that is part of our winning formula. So, so what did, did, does venture capital really have to change again? Because it hasn't changed a lot. You know, they sort of sit there. This is a good question. I've been thinking a lot about this Mm -hmm. lately. I think it does. I think everything has to keep changing. Mm-hmm. I think that sectors mature. Because there's tons of money. There's you know, SoftBank came in and sort of was just throwing money at everything, shoving down every rat hole they could. Um, what has to shift? Is it just not, not as much money or different ways of investing? What do you see? Well, I think thing? so the— incredible amount of influx of capital has happened over the last decade. Every year it's gone up more Mm -hmm. and more, and more different types of investors have come into the private market ecosystem. 
part of that is because there isn't the small and mid-cap market in the public markets anymore Mm -hmm. that used to be in decades past. And the market's gotten more mature, and now you can't be a small hedge fund and be as successful. You have to be a big money man. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that the stock market and everything that works around that ecosystem has changed dramatically in Mm -hmm. the last 20 years. And I think venture has been going through a lot of change as more money has been coming to the ecosystem. Part of that big money has played into this thesis of kind of capital as a moat or as an advantage. And I I think that so far that's been proven to not be true, mm-hmm. to, not be yeah, a real, well. to not be a real big advantage. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're an investor, you have to look at that very seriously and think like, if that's, if just plowing more money things is not an advantage, then what am I doing with my big piles of money mm-hmm. to be differentiated in this market or mm-hmm. to invest in companies that have really good prospects. So what do you think, to finish up what the key thing we've got to get going, but what do you think the key thing then is if it's not money? I mean, look at the SoftBank traffic accident again is showing they recently, I think Axios had, Dan Primack had a story about them pulling out of a whole bunch of stuff, including some in health. I think we have to stay nimble in our thinking. I mm-hmm. think we have to, you know, continue to cultivate original thinking. We have to continue to take risks on funding new ideas. We can't all keep chasing the same three themes and then mm-hmm. everybody dogpiling into the top three companies in those spaces because... Mm-hmm. We won't get the best of what we can be mm-hmm. unless we just, you know, keep pushing things forward in more and different ways. And so, you know, I think, ironically, the person in me who started out being a risk-adverse mm-hmm. person who wanted a job where they knew a paycheck is now mm-hmm. operating in the business that's pushing me to think more, you mm-hmm. know, calculated about risk, but to continue to push the envelope forward. Don't mm-hmm. fund another version of another D2C company. Think about what's next. Where are things going? Who hasn't invented? Who hasn't been there? Mm-hmm. And think about doing it judiciously. I mean, we're fiduciaries to our investors. We have mm-hmm. their capital we have to be responsible for. I can't just throw it all in one place and hopes it works out. Mm-hmm. I can continue to invest in a company if they're showing that the they're... Metrics. Yeah. 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 And when you think about where you wouldn't want to invest, I always ask this for, for all venture people, what is the most area you just wouldn't invest? Ben Horowitz said social networks and search because of Facebook and Google, I just wouldn't do it. E-commerce too. He's like, eh, I don't have an advantage. Yeah. Well, I was. That was gonna be my answer, which yeah. is like, I really look for areas where we can have an advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's probably merit in investing in any in any sector because mm-hmm. everything could could be better than it is, mm-hmm. or there's a new version of it. Mm-hmm. But I think to be successful in that space. You benefit greatly when you have a research approach, mm-hmm. when you have a unique perspective, when you can really take the time to learn and understand the players in the ecosystem, what it takes to be different, what it takes to have a better business model. And so, you know, I think that at Forerunner, we've been disciplined and really kind of trying to maximize the edge we had in, in commerce while being very deliberate about how we've pushed the thinking forward, indulged our curiosities, and started to work into other categories. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to continue to challenge ourselves to do. I think it's going to keep the job interesting for us, and I think it's going to put us in the best position to invest in companies that are doing unique things, that have unique ideas about the approach to the world. And last question, and very brief. Um, When you think about Silicon Valley as a place and a mentality, is that played out from your perspective, or is it—people have to think more globally or— you know, when you're looking at the world economy right now, so many complexities with China oh, and everything. Oh, it's so, it's so complex. Right. So is the idea of what Silicon Valley has been played out now or has to change in some significant way? I don't way? think you can afford to operate in a microcosm of this environment. Mm-hmm. You've got you've to pull your head out and think about, like, how dynamic and different this country is. Mm-hmm. That's been revealed to us in many ugly ways over the mm-hmm. last couple of years in 
particular and how small the world is getting with how dependent people are on each other or how powers is shifting in different ways. I I think that's, you know, incredibly important. And I think it makes this job more challenging for sure, but mm-hmm. it also makes it more interesting. And outside of this country, where is the most dynamic investing and creation happening? So in an effort to be a disciplined investor, Mm -hmm. I've really tried to kind of, you know, stick to my knitting and Mm -hmm. push it forward in concentric Mm -hmm. circles. And we haven't branched out as a team internationally. But as a person who's interested, who's like thinking about Mm -hmm. the world and what's going on in the world, it's hard not to be fascinated about China, to be fascinated and scared about Mm -hmm. what's happening in China. I mean, they are at the forefront of so many things. They're probably at the forefront of more things than anybody else. And to think about where they're dabbling in like privacy and security and all those areas and what the ripple effects are Mm -hmm. about that. But no international forerunner right now. No international forerunner right now. Excellent. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we were going to have you back. You're such a Thanks, great thinker. Sarah, it's such for a pleasure having talking me. to you. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Kirsten, where can people find you online? At forerunnerventures.com. Okay. At, um, on Twitter at A Kirsten A Green. And I'm a little bit on Instagram. Are you? Kirsten Green. <laughs> what do you put up pictures I'm of? mostly a voyeur. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I put good. pictures up of my kid. kids. Yeah. <laughs> Not that if, interesting. If, if you like that, they're very interesting. Mm-hmm. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. 